Good to see you here tonight. If you were with us this morning and are back tonight, we're so thankful for that. You know, Tommy said just a few minutes ago, in just a little while, we'll be going down and we'll be uh, sending Connor and Caden off on a good note and showing them a little bit more love, as Connor preached about this morning. But he said it would be probably an hour that we would be, you know, before we would do that. And I couldn't help but think how optimistic Tommy was when I looked to see what was sitting beside me here on this pew. Somebody has a pillow and a quilt sitting on the pew, so they're a lot less optimistic than Tommy is in getting out early, but uh, we're so thankful again to see you here tonight. We've been talking so far this year, last Sunday night, we began a study of Bible evangelism, back to Bible evangelism, and as I mentioned last Sunday night, we're going to be dealing with that and we'll be going through some things throughout the year that will help us to have some tools in our toolbox, and you'll understand that reference as we come to the end of our lesson tonight. But as we began our session last week, we started with somewhat of a self-assessment. If you were here with us, we had passed out a sheet of paper and asked you to answer on the paper, but we won't do that tonight. We'll have just a short review. As we go through, the first question was, who was the key person in your life who helped lead you to the Lord? Usually we have someone who, who helped us, who guided us in the way. Do you believe the Bible teaches that every Christian should reach out to try to lead souls to Christ? Well, we studied God's Word last week, and we saw that that is indeed something that we, as individuals in the Lord's church, must seek to do. How many people have you personally helped lead to Christ? You know, we are to be bearing fruit, and, and sometimes, you know, we may pay a, uh, play a part in, in bringing someone to Christ, but, you know, even if we play that small part, we have had a part and we have done some things to lead those to Christ. In the past 12 months, how many hours, minutes per week did you average in reaching out to others about the Lord? Well, sometimes it's not nearly as much as we need to. How many people do you know have, uh, do you uh, now have in mind that you would like to win to Christ? Well, hopefully we've got a list of people in our own mind that, that we would like to win. And then, in what specific ways have you reached out to these specific people. We asked those, those questions last week. How many times last week did you pray by name for the individuals you would like to win for the Lord? And of course, hopefully we do that. And uh, if, we, if we don't, then maybe we'll, we'll make some progress in, in doing just that. Uh, how many times, uh, well, uh, next one. Uh, have you ever been embarrassed to talk to people about Christ? Have you ever used the excuse, I don't know how, for not reaching out to others? And when do you plan to start reaching out to others about their salvation if you're not already doing that? You know, the point of reviewing those things is that we looked into the mirror last week. We had a self-assessment, and I hope that we're not like those who the Bible mentions that look in the mirror and walk away without making any changes. And so, <clears throat> as we think about it, I want us to remember tonight that, that any time you know of someone who uh, you would like to study the Bible with, uh, even if you don't feel as though you're capable of doing it or not comfortable in teaching someone, be sure uh, to let us know because we have a number of folks here who would be willing to... Uh, to actually conduct Bible studies. And so if you would uh, reach out to your friends and at least get the appointment set, then we would love to sit down and help you to do that. You see, we encourage everyone to uh, 
to, to do their part of their Christian duty and learning to do evangelistic work. And that's men, that's women, that's boys, that's girls, that's young, that's old, and, and uh, uh, any age in between. We, you know, encourage because that's what the Bible encourages us to do. But in doing that, and this is where we want to move to tonight, there are some don'ts that we need to remember in regard to doing Bible evangelism. Some things that we don't need to do. Some things that we need to leave off, if you will. Sometimes we, we stretch ourselves out, but uh, there are some don'ts. And that's what I want us to look at, and that's what I want us to think about tonight. And so, let's jump right into those, and let's talk about them just a little bit. Number one, don't confuse getting everybody told or fussing about religion with biblical evangelism. If you think it's your job just to, to reach out to someone and tell them, you know, just to, to, uh, to get them told about what they believe and why that's wrong and how that's wrong, and you've got a bad attitude, that's not what Bible evangelism is. If you have your copy of God's Word tonight, I want you to turn to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. There's some interesting things there. He's, he's not necessarily talking specifically about personal evangelism as we might think about it. But each one of us, uh, he is talking about each one of us. And so let's do some reading together. The Bible says there, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth." And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, even though there's no reference necessarily to personal evangelism there, we are each one, one of God's ministers. Uh, the minister is not just the one who stands before you and preaches. That's not the Bible uh, definition of it. We are all workers in the kingdom of the Lord. And so he, as he's writing to Timothy, he's telling him some things, giving him some advice, and, and uh, he says the, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel. But before we get even to that part, I, I want us to go back to the very first part in verse number 22. The Apostle Paul writes and says, So flee youthful passions. How in the world does that do anything for a personal evangelism. Flee youthful passions. When you hear that terminology, probably what comes to your mind, would come to the mind of most, is uh, some kind of uh, sexual thought that a young person might have or something of that nature that, that young people can get into trouble with. And, and indeed, we, we do need to flee those kinds of things. But I'm not sure that Paul is actually talking about uh, the passions in a sexual sense here in this passage. 
because as you begin to do some study about the word that's used here and translated here, youthful passions, there are some other occasions when it's used and it has nothing to do with the sexuality or things of that nature. Go first to the book of Romans chapter 7 and then look at verses 7 and 8. And we probably won't even recognize the word by the way it's translated here, but I'll point it out to us as we go. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, I had been, uh, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the Lord had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Did you catch in that passage where the word that's used here in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 22 was? Probably not, because in that passage it's used twice, but the first time it's translated covet, and the second time it's translated covetousness. And so the idea here is that, that, that it's not just a sexual thing that Paul is writing about, not especially in, uh, in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, and it's possible that it's not what he's talking about here in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 at verse number 22. Let me point out another passage, Jude, verse number 16. He said, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. That's the word that's used there. Same word that we have in our passage here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 at verse number 22. He said uh, again, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Again, when you look at that passage of Scripture, he doesn't seem to be addressing things of a sexual nature, but he actually seems to be addressing things that are childish in nature. Childish in nature. Uh, notice, especially, let's go stay with Jude, verse 16, a grumbler, a malcontent. Have you ever, have you ever seen a child that and it's not just children, but, you know, there are grown children, if you will, who are not content with the things that they have. They get something and, and then they want, you know, another thing because that wasn't exactly the one that they wanted. You know, notice what he talks about, loudmouth boasters showing, advantage, uh, showing favoritism to gain. Those are all things children would do. And so in this context, when he talks about the uh, desires there that he mentions, the sinful desires, you have to keep it within its context. Childish things that a person would do. And, and so when we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we take a look at the passage itself, here again, he's not addressing necessarily sexuality or things of that nature. We may think of that at the very first when we see youthful passions, but in its context, Paul seems to have something else in mind. Notice verse 23. Have nothing to do with, with foolish controversies. Ever seen two children get into a fight? Get into an argument? You know, what's it about? I don't know. They just 
couldn't, they couldn't get along that, that minute. Foolish controversies. Yeah, you know, he says, that that will breed quarrels. Okay? Think about it. And, and then he says, and the servant of the Lord must not be quarrelsome. That seems to be what he has in mind here in this passage, verses 22 through 26. How the servant of the Lord is to react. Now the goal is, if you notice here, is to save someone from the snare of the devil. Okay? To, uh, 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 to, to rescue him, if you will. Uh, that, that, that he might repent and change his life. And so the arguing thing, the quarreling thing, does not behoove a Christian. That's something some child would do. That's a childish thing that someone would do. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have ever had an argument about religion? Think about that. Think about that. How many of us have ever had an argument about religion with someone? Did we allow them to draw us into that? Did we, did we grow from 50 years old down to 5 years old, you know, and jump back in that realm? You see, getting someone told, and put that in quotation marks, just letting them have it is not the way to do evangelism, Bible evangelism. That is not the way to do it. Notice again in this passage that he specifically points out the fact that the servant of the Lord must be kind to everyone. That he must be able to teach. That he must patiently endure evil. He corrects his opponents with gentleness. All of those things are the opposite of getting somebody told. Just, just telling them off because your religion is wrong. <coughs> Mine's right. Don't confuse the two. You see, if we were to confuse it, we're probably not going to get anybody released from the snare of the devil. Right? We might even push them even farther into the, into the trap and, and to keep them, you know, there where they are. So when we're, when we're talking religion, we have to approach it like a grown-up, a level-headed person, a sober-minded person, using tact and, and, and in a way that would help someone understand that there is a God in heaven and that God in heaven loves them and that you love them enough to care for their soul and want them to know truth, not opinion, not things that that somebody else just taught you that you hold that person in high esteem, but the truth of God's Word. And so... Don't ever confuse the two. Number two, uh, personal evangelism is not about winning, uh, learning how to win an argument. Number two, don't begin with criticism. Don't, be, don't do that. How many believe that the first thing we ought to do when studying with someone is to tell them they're wrong? That you are, you're going to hell. How, how many believe that? 
Well, if you do, then I hope to change your mind tonight. Go back to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And we don't have time to read it in detail tonight. But in Acts chapter 17, if you begin in verse 16 and go all the way through verse number 34, you're going to find the Apostle Paul. He, he comes to a certain city there, and, and, and when he comes to this city, he is, uh, uh, seems to be by himself at this point. But as he's entering in the city, you know what Paul sees? Paul sees all kinds of religious symbols uh, of idol worship, all kinds of evidence of that. And to make a long story short, Paul strikes up a conversation, if you will, and begins to talk to these people about their idol worship. Does anybody remember how Paul started that conversation off? I'm going to paraphrase it tonight for sake of time. But Paul says, I see you folks are religious. Paul used the thing that they had to his advantage in showing them the truth of God's Word. Paul could have jumped up on a stump and started talking about how bad it was for idolatry to be practiced and, and how ungodly that was and how wrong it was. Paul didn't approach it that way. I'm afraid sometimes we do the opposite of what Paul did. We start criticizing people in the way that they've worshipped. And we, we, if you will, turn them off from listening to the fullness of the gospel of Christ. And that's wrong. That's not Bible evangelism. We want to be like Paul. We want people to see the entirety of the gospel. We want them to have an understanding of what God expects out of them, out of each one. And so we can't just jump in the middle and begin by criticizing some. You know, it's not wrong to commend a person for believing the things that are right, is it? It's not wrong to commend a person for, for believing the things that are right. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 2, Paul tells Timothy, says, Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Sometimes people stop reading there, and they take two out of three, and they say, well, the Bible says to reprove and rebuke. And so that's what I do. Well, yes, and I would agree with you. That's what we're to do, but it also says to exhort... But if you have your Bible, you notice that it didn't even stop there. Do you remember what else Paul wrote? Paul says, with complete patience and teaching. You see, he puts some limitations on us, doesn't he? He, he, he puts some restraint on us when we're teaching someone. We are indeed to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, but we have to have the right attitude when we do that with complete patience. And so we don't begin with, with uh, criticism and telling someone, telling them off or just telling them that they're wrong. Number three, don't act superior because you're not. Don't act superior. How many, 
act as though if one's not a member of the Lord's church, that he's just plain ignorant or maybe even dishonest. I've seen people who, who I would agree with the, the teaching that they do, but the attitude and the way that they act is definitely not in keeping with the Word of God. How many believe that we're right and everybody else is wrong? We have the truth. I believe that. I truly do. We have the truth, but that doesn't mean that we should act haughty about it, does it? That's not the way we're to be. We're not superior. We're sinners who are saved by grace. And any other person who's saved on the face of God's earth are going to be saved in the same way. And any other person you talk to, you know what they are? They're just like you. They're a sinner too. And so, no, we're not superior to anyone. We just have the grace of God that He has extended to us that we didn't deserve, that He didn't have to give us, but He did. And it's our duty and our obligation as Christians to share that with others. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, at verse number 3, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, if you, if you look at the beginning of that passage, Paul says, by the grace given to me, what was the grace given to him? Paul was an inspired apostle. Uh, he, he was directed by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in the things that he wrote. They were not his words, they were God's words. And Paul says that was grace, even in giving that to him. But, but we're not to be above all of that. We're to reach out in humility. You see, we need to let the person that we're studying with know that we're studying with him or her and not just getting him told. I believe with all my heart that I have taught the truth my entire life. But you know what? If somebody could take the Word of God and show me where I'm wrong, I'm not talking about just telling me that, hey, preacher, you're wrong. If you can take the Word of God and show me where I'm wrong, you know what I'll do? I believe I know myself well enough to say, I'm going to take the truth. I'm going to switch to what is right if I am saying it wrong. And so that's the attitude that, that we're to have. We're studying together. Studying together. Next, don't be dogmatic. You say, well, preacher, you know, we have to stand strong. Does anybody know what the word dogmatic means? I mean, we use it a lot. Characterized by or given to the expression of opinions. Very strongly or positively as if it were facts. 
How many of us try to win people to our opinion? I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm talking about in anything. I mean, you, you, you just think about it for a minute. Whose opinion is right? Well, if I'm answering the question, I know whose is right. Mine's right, but if you're answering the question, yours is right, right? If we're dealing with opinions, we're dealing with the wrong thing. In Christianity, we can't deal with opinions. We deal with God's absolute truth. Many people in our world today have come to the conclusion there's no such thing as absolute truth. And if they would just think about what they just said... If there's no such thing as absolute truth, what have they just said? Oh, well, that's an absolute truth. That there's no such thing as absolute truth. Makes you sort of look foolish, doesn't it? When you really think about it. And so we don't deal with opinions. We deal with the Word of God. A second definition from a different source, asserting opinions in a doctrinaire or arrogant manner. Opinionated. That's the definition of the word dogmatic. I didn't make it up. I just copied it out of the dictionary. And I repeated it to us tonight. We're not to be dogmatic. Sometimes, you know what? It pays much better to be diplomatic rather than dogmatic. To be diplomatic rather than dogmatic. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Colossians chapter 4 at verse number 6. Let your speech always... Now when, when can it not be this way? Well, if it's to be always, it, it's never not to be this way, right? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Colossians chapter 4 at verse number 6. If I'm simply being opinionated and arrogant when I'm doing it, I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing it wrong. Don't be dogmatic. Next. Don't be pressured to answer every question immediately. Don't be pressured to do that. When you're studying with someone, doing, doing Bible evangelism, don't be pressured into answering every question immediately. You know, a lot of times when, when you're talking to folks about doing personal evangelism, one of, the, one of the biggest objections that people have is this. I don't know if I can answer everybody's questions. You want me to be honest with you? I don't either. I don't know that I can answer. I can find an answer. That's why they make pens and paper. and Well, they used to have typewriters. Now we've got word processors. We've got computers. We've got phones. You know what? We can do some study. We can do some research. And we can help find an answer. But even at that, 
when we're studying with someone, if we don't know, we could simply reply, well, I'll be glad to try to find an answer for you, but that's probably not even what we truly need to do. What really and truly makes us think that we need to answer a person immediately? What brought that on anyway? Somebody said, well, preacher says, don't you know, First Thess- or rather, First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Always give an answer. If you looked at that in other translations, such as the English Standard, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense. That's what the word translated answer is. To make a defense. Apologia is the word that's used. Giving a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Many of you may recognize the name Apologetics Press. Where'd they get the name Apologetics at? They're giving a defense of the gospel. And I think it's still on all of their uh, material, on their, their headers and everything, set for the defense of the gospel or something to that effect. Defending the truth. Make a defense. But again, even at that, when Jesus stood before Pilate, did Jesus give an answer? In the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 12 through 14, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders who gave, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. Not even a single, not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. And did Jesus do wrong? Be careful how you answer that. Some may even think, well, maybe he did because we're to give a defense. That's not how Jesus did it. He didn't give a defense, according to Matthew. When you go to John chapter 19, verses 10 and 11, or he doesn't give an answer, but he does give a defense. I should have said it in that way. In John chapter 19, verses 10 through 11, so Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then it says Jesus answered, okay, But how did he do it? What did he say? You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore he who delivered me over to you, that was the Jews, uh, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. His answer was a defense. He didn't explain everything. He just said, no you wouldn't. You wouldn't have the power unless God had authorized it. And so tonight, we don't need to be pressured into answering every question that someone that we're studying with asks. You know why? 
Because we have to build a basis on which to answer some questions. Some folks, as they've studied the Word of God, have been misled into believing things that are not actually there. And we have to help them see that there is a standard by which we are to go. And when we, when we have the standard, we're build, building a foundation upon which we can build an entire house, if we will. We have to build that foundation. John 16, verse 12, Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This was on the night before his crucifixion. And Jesus is talking to the apostles. If you go back to John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is in the upper room with the apostles on the night before his crucifixion. And though they had been with him for some three years, he still says, you don't have a foundation strong enough yet for me to tell you everything that you need to know. These men didn't even recognize or understand what Jesus was talking about when he tells them he's going to be crucified. They argue, no, you're not. You can't. We'll stand, we'll fight to the death to keep you from being that way, being killed. They didn't understand until after the Lord was crucified, was in the grave, and came out of the grave. They had to do some more learning before they could even understand all of the things that Jesus wanted and needed to say to them. You know, when we're talking with someone, we might simply say, you know, that's a great question. Let's write it down. And we'll come back to it a little bit later. And then once you've built the foundation of Bible authority and when uh, uh, certain questions come up, then it pretty much answers itself. But we built the foundation. You know, thinking about questions, there are differences in questions, right? You know what I'm talking about? There are differences in questions. Number one, there are some questions that are just irrelevant. I've actually had this to happen as I've studied with folks. The question will come up, and here's the question. Did Adam have a belly button? Or where did Cain get his wife? What difference does it make? That's not relevant to your salvation. You're stalling. You're killing time. You're wasting away opportunities. Some questions are just plain irrelevant. Some questions are argumentative and prejudicial in nature. You know, they're designed by design to, to, to evoke an argument with someone. Have you ever been studying with someone or actually just talking with someone and the question comes up, do you think the Church of Christ are the only ones who are going to heaven? Or, or here's another one. What if a person 
hears the gospel, believes the gospel, repents and confesses, but dies on his way to the baptistry, will he be lost? Well, first of all, how many people have you ever heard that did that? I mean, I've been around for a pretty long time in the Lord's church, and I've never, never seen that happen. But they're designed to evoke an argument or to cause prejudice, if you will. My mother was never baptized. Are you telling me she's lost? She was a good woman. A lot of times that's where we fall for the trap. That's when we begin to become angry and argumentative with people. We've already seen we can't do that. That was our first point. And so don't be drawn into that. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 23 and going through verse 27, there were some people who came. Um, the chief priests and the elders of the people came, and as Jesus was teaching, the Bible says, they asked, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Those are pretty good questions. Uh, they had the wrong attitude behind them. And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he asked them about the baptism of John. He asked them about those things. And that question that was designed to be argumentative and prejudicial in nature, Jesus deflected. And when they wouldn't answer his question, Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Don't be drawn in by these kinds of questions. Then there are some questions that are indeed sincere. These are deserving of answers. And that's when, why when you're studying with people who are asking these kinds of questions, that you say, let's write it down, we'll come back, we'll talk about it, and then again, as we've already stated tonight, many times the question is answered even within the study itself. But I want us to understand this, that even though one is sincere, even with that, the foundation must still be laid for a person to understand. And you can't answer their question sincere as it might be unless they have a foundation. You can't begin building a house by nailing shingles to the air. You've got to start with a foundation and build your way up. There are some things that we don't do when it comes to Bible evangelism. I want to challenge you tonight. I'm not going to let it go because we're going to be talking about similar things throughout the year. And I want you to be thinking of at least five people you want to reach with the gospel. Jot down their name. Now, I don't want that paper just to lay in your Bible and, or put it somewhere and let it collect dust. I want, you to, I want you to write down their names and then I want you to begin praying for them by name. Remember we asked the questions last week. We reviewed that self-assessment very quickly as we began our lesson tonight. 
Pray for them by name. Every day. Just like you would on a prayer list for those who are sick. Pray for them by name. Surely all of us can, can come up with, with at least five acquaintances that we have and, and, and pray for these folks and, and then begin assessing the list of people. Where are they on their spiritual journey? Do they already believe in God? Are they already religious? Do they have some level of understanding of the Scriptures? Or are they completely, totally lost when it comes to, to, to opening the Bible? We've got to get serious about evangelism. More serious than we've ever been. I don't know when the Lord will return, and you don't either. But I know... With every breath we breathe, we ourselves are one breath closer to eternity. And every breath that our friends and our loved ones breathe, they too are one breath closer to eternity. And there will come a day when we we'll take our final breath. Who will we reach then? How can we teach them then? Or there may come a time before we take our final breath that the person who's on our list may take his or her final breath And we can't reach them. Not after that. We want to do it before. Let's get serious about evangelism. Let me, let me close with a quote. Many of you may remember Kyle Massingale. Kyle has been here a time or two to speak on our summer series. He is the um, uh, evangelism minister at the Madison Congregation up near Huntsville. Uh, Kyle and I were in school together at Faulkner back hundreds of years ago. I'm not sure he's that old, but I feel like I am now. But here's a quote that he has penned. He says, I tell them that if they... He's talking about evangelism. I tell them that if they have their evangelism toolbox with different tools for different jobs, some need a hammer and some need sandpaper, some need a measuring tape and some need to be squared up some need to be balanced and some need to be plumbed. The more tools or resources you have and practice with, the more ways you can do the work of evangelism. One tool or one method does not work in all cases. However, this is the part I want you to remember. They must place the first tool in their box at some point. How many tools do you have in your evangelism box tonight? Some folks say, well, I don't even have a box. Well, I hope you'll get one. Oh, not a physical box. You don't have to have that. But I hope you'll understand what I'm saying. It's time for us to become even more serious 
than we've ever been in regard to evangelism. Some don'ts, but there are many more do's. It may be tonight that you know the gospel, someone has taught you, and yet you've never obeyed it. We invite you tonight to let us help you, assist you as you become a Christian. Maybe tonight that you have become a Christian in the past, but your life is not right with God tonight, and you need to make a, uh, make a change, and you need to do that in a public way. If we can assist you with that, come right now as we stand and sing.